KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, the focus is the Trump administration's nationwide ban on evictions for non-payment of rent that lasts through the end of the year. It doesn't make the money that's due go away. It also doesn't relieve owners of their needs. Private property is being appropriated by the government for public purposes. The rental housing bubble that could soon burst. What we're talking about here goes beyond just ability to pay rent. But who will pay the ultimate price? We dig in. Then our Patriot Home Care Changemaker is helping groups link innovation and purpose. What can individuals walk away and do differently and do better? The virtual festival that celebrates creative ideas in Philadelphia. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the housing crisis that is bubbling up in America. During the pandemic for months, a number of states, including Pennsylvania, had a moratorium on evictions. But this week, the Trump administration banned all evictions nationwide through the end of the year. The CDC issued the order with the goal of stopping the spread of COVID-19, but the response is mixed. So what is the scope of the order? Who will it impact and who will be left out? With me to discuss this flashpoint is Rashida Phillips, managing attorney of, of housing policy with Community Legal Services. We also have Dr. Vincent Reyna, a professor at University of Pennsylvania in the Department of City and Regional Planning. And finally, we have Cheryl Sittman, a private landlord and real estate investment consultant. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This week, the CDC has issued a moratorium, a nationwide moratorium on evictions through the end of the year. Rashida, I want to start with you, your reaction. And I want you to try to explain what it means for tenants. We were very heartened to see the CDC um, issue something that applied nationally. As of August 31st, um, both the Pennsylvania statewide moratorium and the city of Philadelphia's eviction moratorium expired. And then as of September 3rd, our courts reopened. And so, you know, the CDC uh, moratorium came at the right time um, as we felt, you know, we were getting to a point where we weren't sure what was going to happen. Courts are reopening, evictions can start happening as of the 8th. You know, although um, it is something that will help a lot of people, um, there are some concerns that it does not cover everyone. It does not cover all all types of evictions. It only covers evictions for non-payment of rent. Um, So there's all sorts of nuances in there around, um, you know, whether certain kinds of evictions will be covered. And so, you know, despite this, and despite the fact that it does provide some protections, um, there still are a lot of tenants who will not be able to benefit from this um, potentially and who who still may end up homeless and so what or, or housing unstable in some way. And so what we would like to see happen, um, again, although this is a good measure, um, we would like to see our state or our city still put in place stronger protections that cover more people um, and that more people will be able to benefit from, not just people who are potentially at risk because of non-payment of rent and, and some other limitations. And then the last thing I'll say quickly is that we also have a diversion program here, um, but I can talk more about that later. Wonderful. And let me just do a quick follow-up for you, Rashida, because there are some steps that tenants have to go through before they can just say, 
landlord, I, I, I can't pay. Absolutely. So there is a declaration that comes along with it. And that declaration is very specific. It has some things that you have to be and do in order to qualify um, for this, this protection. And so there's a, a list of factors under it, but you know, the main ones under $99,000 um, impacted not being able to pay your rent in some way. So, so there are, you have to sign that declaration and not everybody knows what's happening, knows that you have to sign that in order for this right to be effective. Um, and you have to provide that to your landlord. And so and there's no notice requirement within the CDC order that your landlord has to tell you that this program exists. Um, so there is some nuance there around um, what tenants need to do in order to um, get the, the, the benefits of the protection. And we'll come back to that as far as like what this could mean actually applying for it. And so Cheryl, I want to bring you in this discussion because I want you to kind of react. I mean, what were, what as a landlord, I, I, you know, I know you have a group of landlords that you all are talking. What are you hearing as far as reaction to this? this new moratorium. People are kind of in shock. I'm a little bit in, well, more than a little bit in shock because we were expecting that this week the courts were going to be opened up and that evictions would be possible. Now, I, I want to say it's not that people like to evict and and it's really unfortunate that there are a lot of evictions in, in the pipeline right now. A lot of people who had started the process even way before COVID-19 and, and, and the whole pandemic became such an influence on what's going on in, in everybody's life um, back in March. But a lot of people had, you know, it takes a long time to evict somebody for, for good and for bad, let's say. And um, there's a lot of stories of people who started a process, even at the end of 2019, were about to have that eviction take place. And then it all got stopped. So it has nothing to do with COVID. What are landlords dealing with when they're told that there's a, a lot of people don't have to pay rent? What are, what are they dealing with? There's a lot to deal with. Landlords, it's, it's a business. And, it, you know, by every definition, owning property is, is a business. Some people, it's a mom and pop thing. They inherited properties. They, they, they invested in one or two properties. Others have turned it into an actual full-time business. And of course, there's larger landlords as well. I think in Philadelphia, with all of the single-family houses, there's there's uh, an abundance of very small landlords who rely on that income for either supplementing income or it is their full-time income. And it's not just losing income, it's losing money on a monthly basis. So if your tenant isn't paying you rent, um, if you have a mortgage to pay, obviously you're going to have difficulty paying back your mortgage. There are expenses that you have on a monthly basis, no matter what. Your taxes have to be paid. You have to have insurance. Um, if your tenant doesn't pay the utilities and you do, then you have to keep paying the utilities by law. Um, if your tenant is supposed to pay water and isn't able to, that, that falls on you. Um, and there are, um, I mean, a lot of, uh, well, of course yeah. there's maintenance issues, so, you know, we all as landlords want to keep our assets in good shape and we want our tenants to be in, in a safe condition. I just wanted to throw in real quick that no one is telling tenants that they don't need to pay rent or shouldn't pay rent. And in fact, the CDC guidance does say that you are still responsible for ongoing rent. So that is not the mandate that's coming from anyone or, or advice to not, yes. not pay rent. Yeah, yeah, and you have to fill out the declaration. We'll come back and kind of talk uh, through this a little bit more. But I want to bring in our professor here. People are saying this CDC policy kind of kicks can down the road in some respects because it's not saying that you won't owe 
any of this rent, could this come to bite us later? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, what we need to acknowledge is what COVID is doing. It's, it's highlighting a lot of pre-existing inequities and a lack of investment in housing and a serious issue of housing affordability that predated COVID and will persist and be amplified after. Uh, prior to COVID, nearly 90% of renters with income below $20,000 were rent burdened. There were 80,000 households in Philadelphia, renters who were paying more than half their income on rent alone, right? Uh, this has been exacerbated during the, the, the current pandemic itself. And this doesn't go away with the moratorium. So the moratorium is necessary, but not sufficient, not just for the tenants, but also for landlords who need to make investments in their properties who are relying on this income. Uh, there's a larger housing policy structure, and there's been quite honestly, for quite some time, a lack of federal vision around housing policy. And it's really was showing dramatically prior to COVID. Uh, and unfortunately, it's been further uh, exacerbated in our current crisis. And uh, the people who bear the, the largest brunt of this are the lowest income households with the least resources to, to, to deal with these uh, realities. Yeah. And so it seems like to me, and I want to bring everybody kind of, because, and I want you to start, Professor, it seems like to me, like pausing evictions is just step one. It seems like there should be more because because if at the January 1st comes, all that money comes due. Yes, that's exactly right. So there's, there's uh, it doesn't make the money that's due go away. It also doesn't relieve owners of their needs uh, during this time, right? Um, one thing we have to remember is housing gets invested in. It relates to housing quality and things along those lines. Uh, and a lot of people are already living in substandard housing. Uh, and the more investments like that get deferred, the more they're needed later on, the more likely a housing units likely to exit the housing stock. So that's all to say that it's in some ways nice, to, in many ways, nice to see this pause, but it needs to be grounded in a much bigger and more robust investment in housing that flows directly to low-income households and also flows to owners who can actually then make these investments in these properties. And so I yeah. wholeheartedly agree that um, this just kicks the can down the road and is could lead to a lot more problems later on. And I want Rashida to come back in here and pick up where you just left off. This is not a free-for-all, don't pay your rent situation. Exactly. That's right. And, and no one is going to advise a tenant to not pay their rent. I mean, you know, the, the professor uh, already said it, like, we this issue existed before. Um, what we're also seeing is that the same people who were facing housing instability prior to COVID are the same people who are facing housing instability now and also... Um, experiencing high rates of COVID infection, and that's Black and African-American communities. Um, and, you know, inevitably, right, what we're talking about here um, goes beyond just ability to pay rent. We are talking about investment and disinvestment. We are talking about historical disinvestment from certain communities around their ability to, to live, you know, in, in stable housing, in healthy housing. We're talking about very long long-term um, historical sort of, you know, social historical things that have happened here to lead us to this moment. So that it's no accident, right, that the same people who are having COVID infections are also um, the same people who are facing housing instability and who are likely to be evicted. And so um, this implicates all of us. It does not just implicate the people who are housing and stable, right, but it implicates all of us because when folks um, are evicted and they're out on the streets, right, that um, risk spreading um, COVID even further. So when we're talking about the CDC guidance, we're not just talking about get, pausing things for, you know, people to get back on their feet, but we're talking about really this is a, for our health, like for our ability to recover and to ever, 
get out of the pandemic, right? We have to take the issue of housing very seriously. If you were put in shelters, they're, they're not testing people for you before you go on a shelter. It seems like you would have to move in maybe and then have more people and making social distancing impossible. Well, exactly. And then the shelters are, there's only 150 beds. And so when you have, you know, 1,800 people at risk of having writs um, executed next week that will leave them evicted, where are all those people going to go? Um, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to access the shelters. They may not be able to access other family members' homes for the reasons you said, social distancing and other considerations. And so where are they going to go? Um, you know, so. Yeah. And so I want to go back to Cheryl. Jump right in. Go right ahead. So, I, mean, I, I agree with everything Rashida is saying, and I um, certainly would never um, try to, to, to say that people should be evicted if they don't need to be or if there's a solution. But there's, there's a big policy failure here because it is falling on the backs of private landlords. Um, I spoke with somebody before the, the, the call who had a situation where a man and woman were renting from her. The man left in December and the lease was in his name. So she was in the process of evicting the woman because the woman wasn't paying, paying rent. Until today, she has not paid any rent or for utilities and she's behind by $15,000. You know, that can really hurt somebody in ways that they can't recover from. When a house is not uh, maintained, there, if a landlord has a roof that is leaking and the tenant isn't paying rent and so there's financial burden on the, on the landlord and they can't pay to fix that roof and the house is getting wet over time. It's not just, oh, the house is getting wet and it's unpleasant. That house can deteriorate to a point where it cannot be recovered. I've seen this happen and that's why we have so many houses in Philadelphia that need to be uh, knocked down and are beyond repair, and, and that's going to continue. So that that's one thing. What are landlords to do in the case that tenants stop paying rent? The PPP, are there any type of support? It's, it's a business, right? So you should be able to get PPP or some grants or whatever. Is that a missing, is, is that a gap in this? Yeah, so I would say in general, there's a serious gap in financial assistance to owners and to tenants, right? Uh, there's been rental assistance programs that have been developed. They're largely underfunded. Uh, and by virtue of being government programs, they usually involve a lot of steps, a lot of process and all of these kind of things uh, that kind of have, have, have made a, introduce some difficulties uh, employing these programs. But that's all to say, um, all of those things are either non-existent or underfunded. So what that does is it leaves both owners and tenants uh, uh, in need of assistance. And so at the national level, we're working at the Housing Initiative at Penn with seven different cities to help them develop their rent relief programs. And these are complex programs, and they often involve the rationing of a small amount of money to a large amount of people who actually need it and not having enough funds to support the tenants, which then affects landlords who would then uh, receive this rental assistance. So it flows on both sides where there's been a lot of effort at the national stage to try to say, we should come up with some form of national policy that provides robust rental assistance to tenants and supports to landlords to not kick this down the curve, right? So create this moratorium, but you can't stop there because all it's doing is kicking the can down the curve and also hurting people down the road, uh, both tenants and owners. Because at the end of the day, I mean, and Rashida, this is going to impact your clients. If all 
the landlords get burned, there's already a lack of affordable housing. Shouldn't there be some kind of like working together here? Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a real selfish choice. And just to kind of get back to Cheryl's um, question around just like, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it is, we're talking about impossible decisions that people have to make. And I think that the way that we have to um, approach it um, in terms of, um, you know, just again, like the, the idea that, right, it's a business on the one hand, but people's lives aren't business, right? And, and shelter and, and having a roof over your head is not a, is not a business consideration in, in some cases, but on a landlord's end it is, right? And so where do those two things meet? Um, you know, especially when we're talking about housing as a human right um, versus housing being a contractual obligation, right? So um, I, I think I agree with, with, with Vincent ultimately and with, with everyone that we have to work together here. Um, and I think some of the solutions, at least at what we have at the local level, right, having a diversion program, having a payment agreement option um, for people to, to try to pay off their background over nine months, um, having a mediation, right? Those are solutions that are crafted to help both landlords and tenants, right? If we can get the money into the landlord's pocket some way, somehow by doing this payment agreement or by connecting the, the tenant to rental assistance that they can try to get. But we also need landlords on the other end to accept that rental assistance and to work with the tenant to sign what they need to sign in order to get that or to take the time out and just say, hey, I can hold off another two or three weeks because actually it's going to take me a lot longer to get a new tenant in and to, you know, um, um, turn, turn a unit over and it's going to be more expensive. Let me try and see if I can work with this tenant. And I realize not every situation is going to lend itself to that, but where it can, you know, we hope to see landlords and tenants working together. Cheryl, I want you to talk solutions. What do landlords need to, number one, help keep this pandemic at bay and two, just sort of not go belly up in the, in the process. I, I'm not sure. Again, like I, I just go back to that. This has been a policy disaster. There's not really been any policy. I don't know where to lie the, you know, to, to point the, the finger. Um, right now I point the finger at the highest level uh, and making this kind of bombastic an announcement without having the funding behind it. It seems to me that when a tenant is in a situation where they have been directly affected, they cannot pay the rent, and that's totally legitimate, that the government is the one who's supposed to come in and, and fund that somehow, and there's supposed to be programs for that. And this whole situation has just obviously brought to the surface all of the social problems that, that have been festering for so long and not being properly dealt with. I don't have the right language like the, uh, the academics and, and the lawyers in, in, in this conversation, but I think you understand what I'm saying. Rather than the big amounts of, of cash that were given for unemployment, maybe some of that should have gone directly to landlords um, because not everybody's making the, say, right decisions about where to put the funds that they were, were getting and there should have been priorities there. Um, I don't know. I'm sure that's very complicated to, to implement. But I, I want to say that I kind of feel in this case that, that private property is being appropriated by the government for public purposes in, in this kind of, of policy. Like I compare it to if somebody will go into a supermarket today and say, I'm having uh, financial difficulty due to COVID, they could prove it or whatever. They can't walk out of the supermarket with a, with a cart full of food. Um, and I don't understand how landlords are treated differently. I can't think of any other industry that's been put in a position 
where they have to fund people, whether it's health insurance, health care, you won't find that doctors are supposed to give um, you know, pay out of pocket for their patients' needs. I feel like there's going to be lawsuits, although I have read that lawsuits filed by landlords across the country, the courts have given the tenants a lot of leeway here. Your point is important because what you're highlighting here is there is no national safety net around housing. And that is a travesty. And that's being highlighted right now, right? And that has to be a fundamental priority going forward and acknowledging that housing is essential good for people uh, and, um, and has become a, a part of people's businesses as well. And acknowledging that need for some safety net generally, not just in a pandemic, but specifically in moments like this, for predictability, right? Households need to be able to predict their finances, right? They need to predict their security, their stability, and make decisions off that. Markets need predictability for providing financing for owners and things along those lines, right? Uh, and, and I think it's this current moment is really highlighting yeah. reality that makes housing different than those other goods that Cheryl mentioned, because there is absolutely zero safety net. And I'm not trying to say we have robust safety nets on every other front, but there is none on the housing front. And I think as we get ready to wrap up, you know, I, I mean, there needs to be, as we think about, this is, a, this is, something needs to be done now. What should people be doing now, you all, to try to, so that we don't have this continue? Because we don't know when this pandemic will end. And at a certain point, regardless of, of, of what position you're in, it can't continue like this inevitably. So what should the lawmakers be doing now? Should they be passing bills? What should they be doing now to ensure that we do not see a huge crash in the coming months that leaves not just landlords, but tenants um, with no place to go? What, one place that I think can be looked to is the literally thousands of city-owned vacant properties. And maybe, the, you know, I imagine somebody somewhere has been discussing something like this. Like, I as an investor don't have access to any of that. I was talking to another landlord today, and she said, if they would give me some of those homes for free, I will rehab them and, and turn them into low-income housing happily. So... There's a lot of you know thinking out of the box that could potentially be be done, and maybe it is being done somewhere. I'm certainly not you know yeah. in in that uh, area. And Rashida, any thoughts on this? Um, I know that tenants are breathing a sigh of relief today, but a few months from now, it may be screams of terror. Yeah, no, I I agree with Cheryl there about um, you know needing to get creative as a country as a city, um, you know, there's things that we can look at. There's models of housing, um, such as community land trust, vacant land, um, that we can utilize to create more affordable housing opportunities in our city. Um, and it, we do have to get creative. We cannot use the same tools and the same sort of thinking that we've used in the past because we, we're going to end up in the same place we are right now. Um, I think we really, you know, I, I, I do think that our state um, needs to continue to step up and, and extend this moratorium to give people an opportunity to work through things and to work things out. And I do realize that, you know, these issues existed before the pandemic, but we cannot um, stray away from the fact that it has exacerbated significantly for people who might not otherwise have been in the situations that they're in. So it calls upon us to, as a society, come together and say, hey, let's pause things, let's try to figure it out, let's work together. 
um, you know, there's specific things that I can share, but, uh, you know, a lot of those things have already been talked about, um, you know, extending the moratorium, increasing access to rental assistance, increasing access to assistance for homeowners and, and mortgage holders. Um, I think all of that is, feels really obvious, but I think um, in other ways we, we do need to get creative and we need to have more compassion for each other um, and say, you know what, um, as a landlord, I did get into this business. It is very different than running a grocery store or other types of things that I'm doing. And, you know, it, it does take a certain kind of compassion for people um, if, if you're going to rent to those people and, and provide a roof over their head. So I fully believe that. And I believe that there are people who are compassionate and, and willing to look at other, th other ways to do this that doesn't require putting people out of their homes and onto the streets. Yeah. And I want you to give you, Professor, final word as we wrap up, because should Congress, should somebody be taking action right now? Uh, so that when the end of this year comes, um, that, that we're in a better place. Absolutely. There is a proposal for a national rent relief bill uh, that provides support for both tenants and owners. Uh, and stuff like that is essential right now. But all of that needs to be grounded in a much broader, longer term vision about housing investment in housing, housing production, housing assistance, things like making the Section 8 voucher universal, right? Providing uh, more financing options and models for small owners uh, to actually invest in their properties, to rehab properties, to develop new properties. All of these kind of broader things have been long needed and that rent relief bill is important on a national level now, but definitely needs to be complemented with those broader actions and vision that are enduring and longstanding. Lots of work to do on all sides. Thank you so much to Rashida Phillips, to Dr. Vincent Arena, and to Cheryl Sitman for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Next up, it's a festival focused on connecting innovation and purpose. What can individuals walk away and do differently and do better? What's happening with the BPHL Fest and how you can get involved. We'll be right back. I'm Matt Leon, sports reporter and anchor here at KYW News Radio. Talking to athletes, coaches, people in Philly sports every day, you find out they have incredible stories to tell. So I started a podcast, a weekly conversation with someone you should know more about. It's called One on One with Matt Leon. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras? One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our past newsmaker of the week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the radio.com app, Apple podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now we here at KYW, we are all about community. And one organization is working to help individuals align their innovation with their purpose through a unique virtual festival that'll connect businesses and the community with resources. Here to talk about the BPHL Innovation Fest is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Executive Director, Michelle Hastan. Michelle, welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks, Cherry. Thanks for having me. So for those who have never heard of the BPHL Innovation Festival, explain what it is. BPHL is a three-day event that started last year in 2019 
as a means of highlighting all of the innovation happening in our region. So it's really a festival that celebrates people, individuals, businesses, organizations that are doing innovation work. And that happens through uh, speakers, panels, workshops, on all different topics, innovation, things like art, fashion, music, all the way to business, tech, and engineering. So everything you can think of, all different topics for people to come hear about. Amazing. And so last year I had the opportunity to see a couple of the chats that you guys had. I mean, you guys were talking to people innovating as far as criminal justice reform. You had people innovating on different topics. Explain this idea of innovation. So innovation doesn't have to be a new invention. Sometimes it's the application of, of something that's existed, but in a new way, right? Innovation can be how we change culture. It can be how we change the way we approach things because we think about it very broadly in the sense of making change or of creating new ideas or, or even personal creativity. That's why the festival really aims to encompass all different kinds of innovation because we don't think it's just for the business sector and just for tech. Yeah. And so last year, you guys attracted 5,000 registrants. We had over 200 uh, sessions last year. We had over 400 speakers. And like you said, we had 5,000 registrants. We were so thrilled by the response we got last year. It was awesome. We didn't expect that. So we're on to bigger and better this year. Yeah. And I wanted to tie that idea of innovation with this year when we're dealing with a pandemic, we're dealing with civil unrest, dealing with these problems and the pivoting that we have seen companies and community groups and individuals have to go through is causing innovation. How do you hope to tap into that? Those are the, the things that really framed the festival this year. If I think about this year, we really focused on innovation through three main lenses. One is economic recovery. So how are businesses pivoting in the face of COVID-19? What's gonna change about how we approach things, how we do business, how we do work? Number two is social justice and racial equity. We have to make change. So we have sessions focused on how do we take action? How do we make change? What can individuals walk away and do differently and do better? And then the third is, just personal inspiration and creativity. A lot of us are, are stuck in the house working at home. We're working virtually and, you know, maybe it's not ideal, but we're figuring it out. Like you said, businesses are figuring out and pivoting. So we have sessions that are really aimed to inspire people, keep them engaged, keep them excited because it's been a tough year. Yeah, it definitely has been. And so give me some highlights about some of the things and parts of the festival that you're most excited about. And um, when we think about racial equity and social justice, one of the ones I'm really excited about is a session called White Women Opt-In. So looking at how we can make sure people can be better allies. And it's really actionable. It's meant to leave people with a plan of action to go do something, right? Not just continue talking. We have a session with our Chambers of Commerce on diversity and inclusion post-pandemic. So what should businesses be doing? So when we think about economic recovery, we have a session on workforce development and access and equity to workforce development programs. Programs. And then we have some personal ones I'm really excited about. We have a session with Rescue Spa talking about, um, you know, home skincare and some of the things that will keep us all sane. We have a session on music and mental health. 
And I have to mention, we have a couple of celebrity speakers we've announced. So uh, the first announcement we made was Issa Rae, the uh, Emmy-nominated star of Insecure, Pitbull, talking about education. So he'll be speaking from his charter school in Little Havana, Miami. And we announced Nick Offerman, uh, who I love from Parks and Rec, Ron Swanson. Uh, He'll be talking about uh, his woodworking passion and how he juggles so many things, like being an actor and a producer and a woodworker. So how can people connect with this festival and be part of it? BPHL is totally free and all of the sessions that I mentioned are accessible to literally everyone. Um, It is all virtual, so you can go to bphlfest.com. The festival is September 15th to 17th. You can look at the agenda, you can mark the sessions you want to go to, and you can tune in via a computer or a mobile phone. We have sessions from 12 o'clock every day until 8 o'clock at night, so you can do it after work, you can do it if you're on a break, you can do it if you're looking for a new opportunity. We'll have networking. So we're going to have speed networking and trivia every night. So you can kind of make social connections and make new friends. So everybody should definitely check it out. So is that one of the cool things about this virtual? It seems like things are becoming more accessible. One of the things that was really important for us was to make this engaging. We didn't want this to feel like look, everyone's on Zoom calls all day. We didn't want the festival to feel like just another Zoom that I have to tune into. So we really tried to make it interactive and engaging. In every single session, there's a group chat. So you can chat with your fellow attendees. You can look them up on the app so you can find other folks who have registered and and again, make those connections. And one other really fun thing I'll mention for our Philadelphia locals is that we'll have some experiences around town as well. So um, things that you can do on your own or with the people that you're quarantining with, but we'll have a BPHL scavenger hunt. So you can go look for innovations around the city. We will have uh, some pop-up shops at Dilworth. And then in the fashion district, we were going to have a via pen pal wall. So you can go and you can take an email address or you can leave your email address to connect with somebody else who has left theirs there. Well, it sounds like this has really forced you all to innovate how you create connectivity while remaining socially distant. Yes, it has. Well, I want to say congratulations to you for creating the second annual BPHL Innovation Festival, September 15th through 17th. Check them out at bphlfest.com. Register. It's all free. Thank you so much, Michelle Hassan, for coming on Flashpoint. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you are a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames. As Princeton University sociologist and author Matthew Desmond once wrote, decent affordable housing should be a basic right for everybody in this country. The reason is simple. Without stable shelter, everything else falls apart. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.